Ian, this celebrity injunction that's in the papers at the moment, is it you? Yes. Page 94, the Private Eye podcast. Hello and welcome back to Page 94. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and this week we are talking about the things that we are not supposed to talk about, namely injunctions and why a lot of wealthy celebrities are ruining them for the rest of us. Plus, we will have library news writer Jane McKenzie taking us through the A to Z of library closures across the UK. But before that, injunctions. There has been a great deal of talk in the English press in the last few weeks and months about uh, threesomes and olive oil. That's olive oil, the uh, cooking substance, not the Popeye character, due largely to an injunction brought by a celebrity couple excitingly nicknamed PJS and YMA. Two people at Private Eye who know a great deal about the alphabet soup of injunctions are celebrity couple without injunctions, Adam McQueen and Francis Ween, who write for The Street of Shame. I spoke to Adam and Francis about the injunction scene, and at the time we recorded this interview, the names of the celebrity couple had not been published. So if you're listening after the names are made public, then feel free to fill in the blanks for yourself as a kind of fun game. To recap the story, as we're allowed to tell it at the moment, celebrity has threesome. Then people who celebrity had threesome with go to the newspapers with the story. Newspaper checks with celebrity... Celebrity Secures Injunction. Adam McQueen picks up the story. One thing to be said at that point is usually there's there, there's a routine that the, the Sunday tabloids always used to have, which is called the fronting up, which is the final call usually made by the editor, which goes through at sort of 8 o'clock on a Saturday night, because it's, it, it's at the last moment they can possibly do it, which is where they get the, the quotes from, from said celebrity and confront them with the story. And that usually would be the point at which um, celebrity then gets off phone from editor, calls lawyers, calls solicitors, and they managed to get one of these emergency injunctions brought in. Now, the courts, dedicated as they are, working through some days until 4.30 in the afternoon, don't tend to be on standby uh, and, and, and ready and waiting at that point on a Saturday night. So quite often what you'd get in these cases was uh, the kind of duty judge who was called in uh, in his pyjamas, um, not necessarily a specialist in media law or someone who knew about it. So they would always err on the side of caution, and you would generally at that point get the emergency injunction. That's not the end of the story, though, because you then have to, or in theory, you then have to have a second hearing to see if a permanent injunction is going to be put in place. Quite often, in a lot of cases, that second stage mysteriously never really happened, and the the emergency injunction just just sat there for a while. The test now, and the test that the Supreme Court are going through with PJS at the moment, is whether there is any reasonable chance of a permanent injunction being granted in future. And if there isn't, then they'll say, you know, there is no point in this temporary injunction staying in place at which point the temporary one is lifted and newspapers are free to report it or is it more complicated than that they would at that point be free to report the original story and name the celebrities involved in getting the injunction. Of course, then they'd have to take all the other legal risks that any any publication takes when publishing any story. So they'd have to, you know, there is still a case of a possible libel writ or action for misuse of personal information, possibly. So, so I mean, they're, 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 it's not as if everyone compiled it. Not everyone has the original story. And as we've seen, the weird thing about this, the story, the version of the story that appeared in the American press was, as I understand it, a quite sort of garbled version of the story in which celebrities in question came out rather worse than they than they would have done in the original story that the Sun were proposing to. So, so not only has the story been sustained over four months where it didn't need to be, the version of it that's out there 
is is a, is a garbled and worse one. You know, that's that, that's another because because the Sun had at least interviewed someone who participated in the threesome, so it was a first-hand account. Whereas the stuff that was appearing elsewhere was um, second, third, about fifteenth-hand by the time it reached corners of the internet. Francis Ween has his own very special place in history because he is the man who invented the term super injunction. Still hoping that one day the Oxford English Dictionary will um, acknowledge this, um, uh, my coinage. I think in about 2009, uh, around about the time of the Trafigura super injunction, which was what really um, got them noticed and got them going when uh, this firm Trafigura injuncted the Guardian, but the Guardian couldn't even report that it had been injuncted. It was ferocious. And we were going to press the day before. There was a written question Paul Farrelly, the Labour MP, had put down about this, saying, um, is it in order for Trafigura to silence the Guardian? Although I think he, I'm not sure how, I can't remember how many details he put in, but it was pretty, you know, he pretty much identified Trafigura, and I think Carter Ruck as well, who needless to say were the, the lawyers. <laughs> um, and so we then, because it was on House Commons order paper for the next day, it was privileged, and we were then able to report it. So we broke the story. And there was then the fuss, um, because uh, Carter Ruck wrote to the Speaker of the House, uh, saying this should be removed from the order paper or that um, that uh, it should not be allowed to be reported, which um, nearly got them hauled up before the Standards and Privileges Committee for attempting to interfere with um, the privileges of Parliament and serve them right, frankly. So that's a super injunction, but what is the difference between that and an injunction classic? Here's Adam to explain. Basically, in the last few years, if you've heard anyone talking or writing about super injunctions, they probably almost certainly don't mean super injunctions, but we're talking about anonymised injunctions are the ones that have been given now. After the whole Trafigura thing came out, and it was obviously such an untenable situation, there was a review led by the uh, the Master of the Rolls in 2011 that basically made the hurdles you had to clear to get a super injunction so much higher. We can't ever quite know, because the nature of a super injunction is that we don't necessarily know about them. Well, the fact that people have been saying people have got injunctions, or that this celebrity has an injunction, is evidence that they don't have a super injunction. If it's an injunction contra mundum is, I think, the phrase, then it's basically for the lawyers of the person who's got the injunction to make sure that the mundum, the world, knows about it. Um, but if it's against a specific newspaper group, then obviously that newspaper or that magazine or whoever knows about it. But, I mean, this came up with the Andrew Marr injunction, uh, the famous Andrew Marr one, because um, I think we, we had a letter from his lawyers saying, uh, we, often, we don't usually get letters from lawyers about injunctions, but we've got in that case saying we act for Andrew Marr and Jackie Ashley, his wife, rather mysteriously. This is just to let you know that, um, you had, that there is, they have an injunction out and you're not allowed to report what is in it. But he didn't say what this thing was or even you know, where the judgment was and what exactly its terms were. So we wrote back and said, well, what's this injunction and what are its terms? And we, we think we're entitled to know rather more about it if you're saying we can't report anything. Yeah, I've, I've no idea why, why on earth lawyers thought it might be a bad idea to send notices about injunctions around to private eye. I can't imagine what, what, what they thought we might have do with them. But um, in fact, that was one of the things, that, again, that was changed in this review in 2011. Um, prior to that, most newsrooms would end up with notification from Shillings or Carter Ruck or any of the usual suspect lawyers who, who act in these cases saying, um, you must under no, no account write about our client who is and name them. One of the things which changed actually partly as, as a result of our, our legal action over Andrew Marr was that if you received this notice, you were then entitled to apply to see all of the legal papers in the case. So essentially, they weren't just tipping you off that there might be a story about someone. They were effectively saying, and, 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 and we can provide you with all the details we are now legally obliged to. Now, at this point in the recording, Adam got out a large stack of papers, which is pretty common at Private Eye. But for once, these were not libel writs. They were something else entirely. Just rustle that towards your microphone. 
put together completely for research purposes to make sure that we don't ever inadvertently name any of them, obviously. Let's have a look. This is the name, this is a complete list, or as far as, complete as, far as, as we can know. make it, of people who have or have had injunctions. J-I-H. God, these we have loved. There's an awful lot of footballers on here. OPQ and BJM and CJM. As I recall, that was one where the judge, uh, Justice Eadie, did us all a favour and uh, ruled that some photos that no one should ever have to see could be seen by anyone. And NEJ, NEJ versus BDZ. Um, that has been in force for quite a few years now, I think, hasn't it? And that was another case where actually it just encourage, has encouraged the tabloids to mention NEJ at every possible opportunity, um, putting on an innocent face and, and saying, <laughs> oh, you've seen this person, is in the news again. We, seem, we don't seem to hear as much of him as we should these days. <laughs> <laughs> We're now just looking at a list of names, which does not make great podcasting, I can tell you. Only because I don't know who the successful professional actor JPH is. Perhaps as a public service, if anyone knows who JPH versus XYZ are... Um, do not tell Don't anyone. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> it would be interesting to know how they come up with these um, usual three, usually three-letter initials for the people in injunctions, because they, uh, it's not as if they just go through the alphabet A, B, C, D, E, F. It looks random, but often it's tantalisingly a bit like a word, and you think, well, does this stand for something? The most famous one was AMM right. versus HXW which everyone's convinced since there's one of the ones we can reveal now, it was uh, Jeremy Clarkson, or as everyone insisted, it was Arsehole Motormouth and his ex-wife, which was yeah. which is rather beautiful, <laughs> if true. I presumably can't have been, because the people in, in, in the court being bound by these injunctions as much as anything else cannot, cannot take the risk of jigsaw identification, as it's called, and pop clues in there, can they? Jigsaw identification is why there's been all these... these strange obscuring phrases like um, an American publication uh, and a political blogger based in Ireland um, in papers in the, in the last few days because these are the people who have uh, who don't come under the jurisdiction of the English and Welsh courts and are therefore able to reveal exactly who PJS and YMA are, are. and the newspapers have then wanted to report the fact that they have been revealed but they can't provide enough clues for uh, for lawyers to be able to say well you've directed your readers to be able to find this thing out it becomes more and more obscure at every step is it that you can't say you know if you google this for example you can't say if you look for this on twitter if you type in the words injunction into twitter because if a newspaper said that everyone would find out who the who had the injunction for example there have been people saying well you can easily find it online is that the same kind of vagueness deliberate vagueness that we're talking about there is certainly in the judgment uh, from the appeal court last week pjs's lawyers talk about uh, social media very carefully and they're not even trying to yeah. <laughs> trying to give you a clue as to well you can't possibly imagine i mean if you if you went looking on myspace for it you, you probably <laughs> probably wouldn't have much luck but um... or friends reunited perhaps <laughs> But given that so many of these celebrities' names are freely available online or on social media, are these injunctions really useful anymore? There are cases where they're necessary, but actually I think, by and large, the media accept that. And, I mean, you don't even need an injunction. I mean, there was a famous case um, back about 15 or 16 years ago when there was a particular story relating to one of the children of um, the then Prime Minister. And he got in touch with the newspapers and said, I know you know this, but it's a private matter and, you know, it could be distressing and here's why. And the press never wrote a word about it. Um, it was suppressed very effectively. He didn't even need to get an injunction because they all accepted, actually, that it was not a good idea to run this story. So, I mean, I think in cases like that, certainly child protection type stuff, then 
not many people would dispute that it, you know, they have their purpose. But for that very reason, they're more likely to to work in those cases because there is a general belief that this is not something that should be blasted all over the front page. A similar anonymisation is done in court cases that involve um, all sorts of child protection issues. Um, so cases where children have been removed from, from families or, or, or and social services have got involved. Or asylum cases quite often um, to protect the anonymity of, of people who are or aren't being removed from the, from the country. And the other thing that strikes me with this is it's going to if this kind of guessing game over any set of initials that appear in a legal document becomes a huge kind of social media game, people are going to be piling into all of these cases as well. And, and there's, a, there's a danger to situations where that, that could still be a useful and effective legal tool um, at the whim of, you know, some very rich celebrities who, which is what it comes down to the real, real issue. We're, we're now looking in this particular case, it's gone to the High Court, to the Court of Appeal twice, and it's now gone to the Supreme Court. You're looking at legal fees of hundreds of thousands, if not more, on both sides. And essentially, this is, this is just something that is only available to very, very rich people or on a whim if they don't want a story to come out. If, you, if you're talking about a justice system that's, that is open to all, this is the exact opposite of that. It's, it, it, it's a ridiculous situation. But obviously the press still behave pretty badly in relation to people who are not famous or extremely wealthy or able to afford, you know, very good laws. There was the story in The Last Eye about the, um, the awful drowning that happened in Ireland. Yeah. And the Irish uh, edition of The Mail on Sunday uh, dispatched someone to uh, the, the grieving woman's house and the reporter uh, got a lot of details out of the uh, the grieving woman without initially revealing that she was a reporter. She eventually fessed up that she was, but only after a lot of conversation. So that's obviously an egregious example of bad behaviour, which doesn't seem to have changed, especially since Leveson. Yes, that sort of thing is always going to happen, I suspect. Whatever, you know, there'll always be rogue hacks who behave in a roguish way. I don't see what you can do about to stop that ever, ever happening. Mm. Um, I mean, the, but the whole post-Leveson thing has been confused by a number of matters, uh, currently the John Whittingdale story, because uh, you have this bizarre back-to-front thing now where uh, finally it came out that not only that John Whittingdale had had an affair with a woman who turned out to be a dominatrix, but that one after another, uh, the Sunday people, the Sun, the Mail on Sunday, had had this, had checked this story, stood it up, you know, gone to some trouble to stand it up and think, oh, how exciting senior politician and a professional dominatrix, you know, classic tabloid splash, and got photos of the couple together, but then spiked it one after another. And then The Independent heard about this, investigated it, and was going to run a story mainly about the fact that the other papers hadn't run the story. And then The Independent spiked it as well, um, the day after John Whittingdale had given a rather conciliatory speech to the Society of Editors. So it is, it has very much become a story about whether the press was deliberately holding back, you know, the, where the newspapers individually thought, actually, we don't want to cause difficulties for Whittingdale because we quite like having him in his present job, um, or whether it was spiked on journalistic grounds. And you now have the ludicrous spectacle of hacked off, the gruesome hacked off, <laughs> and uh, the gruesome, uh, group more gruesome elements of the tabloids uh, turning somersaults, actually inhabiting each other's territory, really. So <laughs> hacked off, saying... Um, Yes, the press had a moral obligation to intrude on John Whittingdale's privacy and um, uh, stitch him up like this, uh, which they wouldn't say about anyone else, just because in this case it happens to be John Whittingdale. No other public figure would they say that of, oh, let's reveal his love life and go to town on it. And equally, you have um, tabloid editors and ex-editors saying, 
Oh, no, no, no. It would be quite improper and not in the public interest at all um, to run a story about a politician and a dominatrix, which, had it been anyone other than the minister responsible for um, press regulation, among other things, and BBC and the rest of it, uh, anyone else, they would have taken the opposite line and said, cool of a story, this one. And they're now pretending. They have to tie themselves in knots. The likes of Neil Wallace, who used to edit the Sunday People and was deputy editor of the News of the World, popping up uh, all over the BBC saying, uh, well, the thing is, it was a non-story. I mean, no one's interested in a story about, you know, no one had ever heard of John Whittingdale's story about a top Tory MP and a dominatrix. Nah, it's not really a tabloid story, is it? And, well, except um, you know, Lord Sewell, whoever he may be, um, most recently, actually, Simon Danshook. I mean, there was a period last year where every other week there was a new girlfriend of Simon Danshook and pages were devoted to it, um, who, um, until all this blew up, was probably an even more obscure figure than John Whittingdale, I should think. Now, another obscure injunction holder, despite the fact that he was one of the men responsible for the 2008 financial meltdown, was the former RBS chief executive Fred Goodwin, formerly Sir Fred Goodwin, until he was stripped of his knighthood in 2012. The year before that, he issued an injunction over an affair that he'd been having. And it was one of these cases where I said, well, why do we need to know about people's sex lives? Well, the person he'd been having the relationship with was at the Royal Bank of Scotland, where disastrous management uh, decisions had been made. So surely, at that point, with a massive bailout from the government, there is a public interest in whether this relationship affected their decisions, you know, the other person's support of Sir Fred Goodwin's leadership, or or, or any of the other sort of personal relationships around the collapse of that bank. Um, There's a very famous one, which is still in place, which is called ETK which was one of the first ones where what, what, what was described in, uh, in, in, the, in the Court of Appeals' latest judgment in this particular case as the trump card of children, uh, where a celebrity uh, was able to say, uh, this would have a terrible effect on my children if, if the news of my affair came out. Well, in that case, it was an extraordinary one because the affair he had had was, was someone else who worked on that television programme who had subsequently been sacked from the programme after... The affair had ended and this person had said uh, that he would feel comfier not working alongside them anymore. Now that, to me, that, 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 that sounds like there is a potential, from, from the little I know about it, which is only what's published in, in, in the judgment, that sounds to me that there's a potential employment issue there, isn't there? If people are having affairs and then, and then, and then people are being sacked as a result of them, potentially. So there are cases, it, it can be about sex, but sex does affect other things and there can there can still be a, a matter of public interest in there. There's grounds for dismissal. It seems quite surprising. And the, the most incredible thing about that case, actually, is, is the legal precedent that it set, which I sat and heard cited in, in the Old Bailey during the preliminary or pre-trial hearings uh, of the trial of Andy Coulson and Rebecca Brooks, uh, where it was completely straight-facedly cited as a reason why their affair should not be revealed uh, because of the distress it might cause to, uh, to Andy Coulson's children. And the, the enormous irony in this being that the other party in this, in this particular injunction of Gate was newsgroup newspapers, i.e. the news of the world, when Andy Coulson was editing it. So having been on the other side and saying, actually, we should be able to, uh, to expose this person's affair, despite the fact that it, it might upset his children, he then used it the other way around to try and stop the fact that he'd been having an affair with Rebecca Brooks well, when both of them were married. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're <laughs> if we're talking about hypocrisy, then uh, <laughs> senior tabloid people, they got it. Adam McQueen. Next up, libraries. In recent years, there has been a particular theme running through the library news column in the eye. Government cuts have taken their toll on provision in places as far apart as Lambeth, Birmingham, Barnet and Liverpool, despite the fact that local authorities are required by law to provide a comprehensive and efficient library service. 
Now, one man who could tell local government to stop this nonsense and keep the libraries open is the Culture Secretary, John Whittingdale, but as discussed in Private Eye, he has been a bit tied up recently. All of which has meant that scores and scores of libraries have been closing, including a proposed 40 in Lancashire alone. Here's Jane McKenzie. Lancashire has 70-odd libraries. It's a big county, is Lancashire. More than half of all its branch libraries are set for the chop. Also, a whole bunch of museums and castles. Um, I read about the Lancashire thing in Library News, and Lancashire County Council are saying, I believe, that at least one library is going to remain open in every administrative area, area I think. Effectively. Um, so that's probably their argument for saying it's still going to be comprehensive and efficient, as the phrase has it from the legislation. Yes, it probably feels significantly less like that if you're the person who has to push your buggy all the way to that library, which is now no longer what used to be your closest library, but the sort of next small town alongs library. So it's maybe a bus journey away. Uh, It becomes less somewhere you can pop to at the same time as you go to the local shops. It becomes, oh, I better plan for my library trip on Wednesday. Why isn't John Whittingdale doing anything? Interestingly, he's got off relatively uh, free from criticism on this because Ed Vasey tends to be the focus because he's specifically the minister whose sort of brief includes libraries. Okay. And he, uh, when he was a shadow minister, was very critical of Andy Burnham for not stepping in to save more libraries. So um, it's it's very uh, rubbish of him not to have stepped in. Um, so, and it can be done. So you said it was done before. It was done. Andy Burnham stepped in over a large tranche of closures that were planned in the Wirral. Uh, and they, he called in an external expert to say, well, is what they are planning to offer going to be comprehensive and efficient? This woman came in and did an investigation and said, no, it's not. That's too big a closure. You can't close more than half of your libraries and still be providing what you need to. And so they, they had to go back and rethink. So Ed Vasey's, the, Ed Vasey's brief. He's, he's the man who, yeah, campaigners tend to be asking, please, could you intervene? So far, he hasn't. But I believe there may be some action from the Department of Culture, Media and Sport over Lambeth because it's been so prominent as a campaign. I suppose one counter argument that might be raised is that libraries are no longer as necessary as they used to be. I think that is a view it's very easy to form. If you're sitting at a desk in front of a computer and you're terribly well trained and informed in how to search for information and all that information is there at your fingertips, that's not the situation for everybody by any means. There are millions of households with no computer at all. On top of that, there are millions of households where there's a computer, but it's probably being controlled by one member of the household and not everybody else has the same access to it, whether that's because you're the youngest child and you don't get a chance. There's all sorts of reasons why you just struggle to get access to information. So having a separate place outside of the home where you can go and quietly find information out is a terrific thing. Actually, just a quiet space. There's plenty of people that are in either overcrowded accommodation or for whatever reason, they there's nowhere to just sit down and do some private study. Libraries provide that. And that's another thing that's happening, isn't it? Councils are 
removing the staff, for example, from the libraries, or they're turning them into unstaffed book collection and drop-off points, rather than what we would think of as being a library. Yes, I think there's a real lack of awareness of how important good library staff are. The imagined library user of policymakers is somebody who pops in to pick up another Mills and Boone, checks it out and leaves. Because real library users are people who go in and ask for some help looking up something important on the internet. We all know how much wrong information there is on the internet, so it's quite important to have somebody to guide you through that if you're an inexperienced information searcher. It's important that there are librarians there making choices about what books to buy, because otherwise you might end up with a library stocked (laughs) with nothing but Agatha Christie's, because that's the interest of your local volunteer who volunteered to sort out the stock list. And I think I read a horrifying statistic in your column, which is that uh, these are 2012 figures, which show that over the previous year, out of 3,500 qualified librarians, 700 jobs had gone. Yeah, that's devastating <laughs> to, to to being able to, to get help finding information. It's not like public library work was ever brilliantly paid and it was a lengthy qualification process. So there are people who really genuinely care about helping people find information. One of the other things I wanted to talk about was uh, the private sector getting involved in library provision, which you mm. write about quite a lot. Capita have taken over... Things like in Barnet, where they were running the IT service. In fact, they run the IT service across Barnet Council, but um, they were running the system in the libraries, uh, which has had an unfortunate crash. And following the unfortunate crash, they discovered that it hadn't been backing up properly either. And therefore, the most recent version of the, the library computer system that they had was from, I think, March 2014, their catalogue, their ebooks, their reader records. Oh, God. All gone. It's like a librarian's worst nightmare. It was particularly bad timing for them because they are trialling a system to have librarian free libraries where even the door system was to be operated by computers and you could just sort of slide yourself in like you can with like a nighttime bank kind of setup. Oh, yeah. Uh, let yourself into the building and do some librarying. And given that if the computer system can be completely deleted in error. <laughs> hate to think what could happen. The library of the future is a single shelf where you have to let yourself in and there's no librarian. Sadly, that does seem to be some people's dream. It doesn't sound comprehensive and efficient, (laughs) which is what the law currently demands. Not very, no. There's a panoply of different options here. You can have your unmanned shelf or you can have your gym. What other creative solutions are councils turning to? Well, some Areas, particularly um, cities, have gone for massive and grandiose um, new public libraries, which are amazing places to be. And unfortunately, they've spent so much on the building and the cafe and the publicity, they don't seem to have enough money left to keep them open. So the incredible new library in in Birmingham city centre uh, unfortunately then had to stop having Sunday opening because they couldn't actually afford to keep it open having spent all the money on producing it. There was also quite a lot of these grand architect design new shiny libraries were funded through PFI 
For instance, in Brighton, they're now spending an enormous amount on servicing that PFI contract, which is unfortunately threatening all the small branch libraries and Hove's library are all under threat because of how much is having to be spent 10 years down the line to pay for the shiny new PFI library. So one of the reasons that libraries have been across the news in general recently is that there have been a lot of protests. In London, we've had lots of protests over Lambeth, and there are others around the place, aren't there? Uh, that's right. There was a uh, fairly successful uh, squat of a library in Free and Barnet in, in North London, where the squatters stuck around for just long enough for a judicial review to be won to keep a library open at that site. So the message seems to be just go to the library and stay there. Stay there. Keep reading. There's a lot of books there. You'll be fine. You won't get bored. (laughs) Keep reading and the library might be saved. That is a good positive message to end on. Jane, thank you very much. That's it for this week's podcast. Thanks to Jane, Adam and Francis and to you for listening. If you'd like even more stories, then issue 1417 of Private Eye is on sale now. It features the eclectic figures of Vivian Westwood, Eric Pickles and an extremely amusing lookalike of Douglas Carswell. My name's Andrew Hunter-Murray and until next time, goodbye.